in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in one of the chairs in front of you, and I would encourage you to follow along. We're only going to be looking at one verse from Colossians tonight, but I think it's helpful to see it with our eyes and be reminded that these words are concrete, that they are true, and that they are real. I'm going to open by reading Colossians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 21 and we'll read through verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord as written at the hand of Paul. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We pray one more time for a blessing over this word. Father, would you do what only you can do? Fill your word with power by your spirit. Let it resonate in our hearts and bear fruit, we pray. Amen. On Wednesdays, we have been studying through the book of Colossians. And over the last several weeks, we have been working through some of these rich, dense verses in which Paul is describing how Christ is better than everyone and everything. That he is higher, he is more satisfying, he is more glorious, he is more worthy of praise, and he is better for you than anyone and everything. Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. He is high and exalted. This is true because he is God. Christ himself, the man, is God. So he's worthy of praise. He's also the creator. He created the world and everything that is in it. He created you. He created all the pleasures that you enjoy. And so he deserves all of our worship as creator. And if that was not enough, he is also the reconciler. Christ, the reconciler. We've looked at some of the details of what this great reconciliation entails. How because of our sin, our, our natural sin, we have had, we have hostility between us and God. Because of sin, man is alienated from God and we are all under his wrath. This isn't a minor problem, this is a hopeless problem. Because humanly speaking, there's no way that we could fix this problem. Because of our sin, we are helpless. As helpless as if we were lost in space, floating, completely separated from everything man-made, just waiting for the oxygen to run out. No ability to save ourselves, no cool plan to get it, to make it back home, no hope. But God in Christ has intervened. On a rescue mission, he has come. Though we were once alienated, 
Christ has now reconciled us. In Colossians, Paul says that Christ has done this by his death. He came in the flesh, and then in the flesh he died. And now he's, according to verse 22, he's committed to presenting us, you and I who were sinners, he's committed to presenting us as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But tonight I'd like to draw your attention to verse 23. I'd like for you to notice this first scary word there in verse 23. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If, whoa, that is a big if. Jesus has reconciled you and Jesus will present you blameless if. If what? That is an important if. Because that means that there is some sort of condition. It means that the whole thing could fall apart if the if isn't dealt with. If what? What does Paul say? If you continue in the faith, not shifting, don't stop hoping in the gospel. From kindergarten all the way up through high school, I was in Boy Scouts. And I enjoyed most of the things in Boy Scouts, but I did not enjoy the fundraising, the traditional fundraising activity of the Boy Scouts, selling popcorn. Perhaps you've been accosted by a child in uniform trying to convince you to pay $9 for what is $2 at the grocery store. I, I, I didn't like it. Every year our troop would provide countless incentives to basically force us to sell the stuff. I remember one year they were like, we will give you money if you sell this. And I was so confused. I'm like, why don't we just, why don't you just take that money and put it to her? Anyways, I, I didn't like it. At this point, I'll admit, I was jealous of the Girl Scouts. They got to sell cookies. Wonderful. Decadent. Delicious. Luscious. Mouth-watering cookies. To remind you, Samoas, Tagalongs, Dosidos, Savannah Smiles, and of course, Thin Mints. Yeah, I see this. Thin Mint cookies, I'm convinced, are one of the greatest things that I've ever put in my mouth. Thin and minty, covered in dark chocolate, but not too sweet and with the perfect crunch. I could eat a sleeve without even stopping to breathe. I would not need to. And if I were to die, so be it. It would be a good way to go. Unlike popcorn, those things, those cookies sell themselves. Who cares how much they cost? Five weeks ago, my wife came home with a box of Thin Mint cookies. I noticed them. She did not tell me about this, but I noticed them. One solitary box at the top shelf up in the cupboard, back behind like the raisins and the other th things, like wafers. and There they were. My wife must have noticed what was happening because I was standing at the cabinet with a pool of drool on the floor, which was neither my son's nor my dog's. It was mine. And she immediately said, Nathan, those are not for you. I said, what do you mean? What are you trying to do to me? It turns out she was right. In fact, I had been trying that very week to really start 
cutting down on the sweets and desserts. And let's just face it, no normal adult has even a moderate amount of self-control when it comes to thin mint cookies. So right then and there, I had a surge of, after anger, I had a surge of resolve. And I said, I will not eat a single one of these thin mint cookies. Once I had made the decision, I felt really good about myself. I went to the mirror and just kind of flexed to see if I'd gotten any stronger or any thinner. I thought that was a major accomplishment. But what I didn't plan on was the fact that since I would not be eating them, those thin mint cookies would be there for quite a while. It took five torturing weeks for that box to disappear. Every day, day after day, there they were, taunting me. The Kelly green box, the two sleeves. After a few weeks of this, I was standing strong, and I proudly updated my wife on my Olympic accomplishment. And I joked that I feel like I should be skinny and fit for life just for not eating any Thin Mint cookies this time around. And I was serious. One night, you know, after eating grapes instead of cookies, I thought about going to get on the scale, see if anything magic had happened. You see, it was as if making one decision, this one-time decision to be healthy, it was as if that would be all that I need to be healthy for life. For some of us, this is how we treat the gospel. We think, if I, I accepted Jesus into my life that one time, so now I'm good. I'm set. That's all I need to do to be healthy. But that, that won't do, according to the scriptures. Christians, and listen Track with me carefully on this. Christians don't trust Jesus once, but forever. We trust him again and again. We repeatedly place our trust in him over and over. The healthy Christian life is not where one exercises faith once, but where we exercise faith continually over and over again. Choosing to eat grapes instead of a sleeve of thin mints is good, but I must continue to make healthy choices. You see, friends, the mark of a Christian is not that we have trusted Jesus once, but that we actively place our hope in Jesus now, continually. We place our hope in him, and we leave it there. That is the mark of the Christian. One of the saddest realities in all of the scripture is that there are people who profess Christ and will not be saved. Do you remember these chilling words of Jesus? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Let me ask you this question. How do you know that that won't be you? These are people who think they're saved. These are church folk. How do you know that won't be you? How do I know that won't be me? The answer is this. Because I'm continuing in my faith. That's what Paul says is the mark here. That you and I that you are reconciled and you will be glorified if you continue in the faith. Not stopping hoping in the gospel. Continue. 
What does that look like? What does it mean to continue in the faith? How do you continue in the faith? Well, thankfully, the text tells us. And we should listen carefully to this point because this is really the main idea from this text this evening. How do we continue in the faith? By continually hoping in the gospel. How do you continue in the faith? By continually hoping in the gospel. Or from the text, we could say, by not shifting away from the hope of the gospel, by being gospel stable, by being gospel solid, by not being blown away by a sin or by a temptation or by some other small God. By continuing to turn away from your sins and to Jesus again and again. My friends, part of being a Christian, part of following Jesus, is that you place your faith in him again and again and again, and again. Not to be saved again, and again, and again, but that's what saved people do. We trust in Jesus. How does this work? I think the pattern is really simple. We could just think about the basics of the gospel, right? You know the gospel, I hope. Sinners deserve wrath from God because of sin. But by turning to Jesus in repentance and faith, we turn away from our sin, we turn to Jesus, and we admit, I need the blood of Jesus to cover my sin. I have done these things, and if I don't get Christ, I have no hope. And the gospel gives us hope. The hope of the gospel is that if we turn to him, he will save us. That's the gospel. So how do we continually do that? How do you do that again and again? It's like this. Every time you sin, every time you are convicted and realize that your individual, specific, concrete sin, I'm not talking about like the generic sin that like terrorists do. I'm talking about the sins you've committed today. That angry word, that lustful glance, that complaining bitter spirit, that envy that you experience while you were on Instagram. Each one of those sins deserves the full wrath of God. And so, you turn in disgust away from your sin, and where do you look? To Jesus. He is the only hope that you have to be reconciled. That is the Christian life. You turn from your sin to Jesus. We've said it in the past. Perhaps you remember this formula. The Christian life is simply this. Believe, repent, repeat. Believe, repent, repeat. Believe, repent, repeat. Paul is communicating to us that there is a temptation to be untethered from the gospel, to drift away, to shift away from the gospel. How could that happen? I mean, what, what would that look like? How, how, can, how could we be moved or shifted away from this hope? Well, the answer is self-righteousness. I'm not that bad. I don't need this. We begin to think like we don't need the gospel anymore, perhaps because we added it to our biography back in the 80s, or perhaps because we believe certain things about a certain person in history, or perhaps because we're a part of church. We may be tempted to think we don't need the gospel anymore. 
Other people need it, but I don't need it today. We begin to trust some past decision, ignoring the call to take up the cross of Christ daily and follow him. I mean, how, how do you know if you're going to do this? How do you know if you are stable and steadfast in your hope of the gospel? How do you know right now, if, I, if we were to somehow interview you and if you were to give an answer, how do you know that right now you are stable and steadfast in the hope of the gospel? Well, let me suggest a diagnostic question for you, which is appropriate as we come to the Lord's table tonight in this time of examination. What sin is God convicting you of this week? Perhaps right now. It's just you and the Lord. Be as specific as you can. Maybe don't think anger, but think a specific instance or outburst of anger. Is your heart sensitive? And are you aware of your continual sin? And now that you see that sin, are you looking to Jesus as you turn away from it? Is God convicting you of a sin and are you looking to Jesus as you turn away? One way to tell that you're doing this is that the cross will become much more interesting, won't it? The cross will be much more exciting You'll like singing about it more, even if the tune is strange. You'll start to notice it more. There's something about it that will get you excited, that will amaze you, that will make you think about it more. You'll feel needy. And when you read about it in strange places in the Bible, like in Isaiah, you'll begin to see the cross everywhere. And it will give you hope. It's springtime, which means that it's Easter, and it's Holy Week. It, it comes around again. And this is a time where, as Christians, we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Christ again. We did this last year. And Lord willing, we'll do it again next year. I'll certainly be celebrating it, whether I'm here or, some, or in heaven, I don't know. But we are here again. Another communion service. Another service of darkness. Perhaps a good question would be to ask yourself honestly, does all this bore you? Were you excited about the Lord's Supper tonight? I mean, Easter has a lot to compete with. March Madness, the Masters, Cadbury eggs, jelly beans. But friends, if basketball or golf or chocolate excite us more than the gospel, then we may be in danger of shifting away from the hope of the gospel. Because the cross excites people who hope in Jesus. That's how this shift would work. It's a, it would be a small, subtle, gradual change. Boredom. I don't need this. I don't see any sin. You stop asking questions. You stop looking numbing your heart with your phone or your, 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 your media. The changes can be so gradual that they may, all, they may seem all but imperceptible. And that's exactly what makes them so dangerous. And friends, if I could just encourage you, this is why it is so important to be involved in a gospel-centered church. You see, the Christian life is, 
is full of regular repeating rituals, all designed to help us remember that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. That's why regular worship is so important. You come and you gather with people and you might feel awkward or uncomfortable, but you sing songs about a great God. And you remember, I'm not like that. And I don't worship him like I should. And I'm not obeying him as I should. And you hear the word preach and you see, I don't do that. I don't live like that. And you say, I need Jesus. And then you hear the news of Christ and you place your hope in him. And then you go out and then what? You live by faith and you fail and then you do it again. We need these rituals. This is why worship is so important. This is why regular Bible reading is so important. I wake up every morning and I'm told at 6 a.m. that I am a sinner. (laughs) If I didn't figure it out in the four minutes before that, my pre-coffee minutes are rocky, I'll tell you. I'm a sinner. This is why it's so important to see baptism and to take communion and to watch communion. And this is why Easter is so important. They all guard us from shifting away from the hope of the gospel. This evening, we have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper was instituted by our Lord himself during the Passover week, the week that he was crucified. Theologically, the Passover meal, the Old Testament Passover meal, was the most important meal in the life of Israel. It's where they commemorated the the Passover of Exodus, where God commanded his people who were enslaved in Egypt to take the blood of a lamb and to smear it over the doorpost so that when the angel of death came through Egypt, he would see the blood and pass over that house. The Passover is a celebration of how the blood functioned as a shield from God. A shield against the wrath of Yahweh. The family inside would remain safe. Why? Because of the blood. Because of the blood of a lamb. And for dinner, they would eat the lifeless, bloodless carcass of the lamb and they would gain nourishment together as they remembered, and as certainly they felt awe and gratitude that they weren't taken by the angel of death. It was during this commemorative meal, hundreds of years later, that the Lord transformed and filled the Passover meal with new, richer meaning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we read that Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. No longer would a lamb need to be eaten because Christ, the Lamb of God, will never need to be sacrificed again. He is the better, pure, and spotless lamb. And so instead, at the Lord's Supper, we eat bread and we drink wine to remember that the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb of God, is our shield from the wrath of God. And in doing so, we remember and we cling to Jesus. We hold on to the gospel. He has a shield and we hide under him. 
in 480 BC, a famous battle took place called the Battle of Thermopylae. It's where King Leonidas of Sparta led his very small Greek force of about 7,000 men into battle. They went face to face with a massive army, the largest the ancient world had ever seen, the army of King Xerxes of the Persian Empire. They faced a force that was so much greater than their own that the Spartans knew they would die, and they, they died there in what is one of the most famous last stands in military history. The Spartans were totally outnumbered. Some estimates, some of, the, some of the literature says that they were outnumbered 301 to 1. Modern historians have taken that and they've done their fuzzy history math and they've said that it's probably more like 21 to 1, outnumbered 21 to 1. The army was so large that one Greek soldier preserved in history named Dionysus, he famously said this, when the barbarians discharged their arrows, they obscured the light of the sun with the multitude of their arrows. That they're literally were so many arrows that it darkened out the sky. The Greek soldiers were equipped for this. They carried large shields, and when this cloud of arrows came, they would hide safely behind their shield. As more arrows than you could even count landed all around them and pierced the sword. Brothers and sisters, every sin we commit merits the arrow of the wrath of God. And for each sin, each individual sin, we should remember that this one sin, no matter how small I want to excuse it to be, deserves and produces the real wrath, a real arrow of God's divine fury. And you cannot stand in the storm of God's fury. Our sin, your sin, is so great that it blacks out the sky. Your only hope is to hide in Jesus. His blood is our shield from the wrath of God. And he alone is able to reconcile us, making peace by the blood of the cross. As we now turn to take the Lord's Supper... I would like to encourage you to do so carefully and reflectively. And take some moments of reflection as you consider your spiritual health. Marv will come in a few moments and, and give some more instructions. But let me leave you with a question. What sins have you committed recently that leave you deserving of the wrath of God? And then pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind concrete sins. As you do that, recognize that your only hope is to hide under the shield of the blood of the Lamb. Colossians 1.23, Paul speaks of how the Colossians are not to shift away from the hope of the gospel which they heard, and he says, it has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Well, here, we can remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he said that when we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the death of the Lord Jesus until he comes.
So let me invite you to see and to hear the good news of the gospel and then participate as you come to the Lord's table. At this point, I'd like to ask for our deacons who will be serving to come forward.